All right, welcome back. Uh, and a special guest today is uh, Dr. Annie O'Connor. Annie, thank you so much for joining me today on the show. Oh, Alex, this is a pleasure. And I, you know, first off, I am not a doctor. I all oh, these people apologies. call me yeah. doctor, and I, I think to myself, oh my god, let's not get this. You know, I didn't really get my doctor of physical therapy, um, probably because I spent so much time learning everyone else's discipline. I never really succeeded to go forward in my own, but. Thank you for referencing me that way. It is flattering and honor, but just make sure I'm just Annie O'Connor, physical therapist, uh, extraordinaire, if we have to go there. Let's from, go with that. Uh, yeah, I like Chicago, that. And looking forward to sharing this time with you, sharpening each other and hopefully. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm I'm so honored to have you on. Uh, we've got a lot of questions. Um, we, we've um, been following your stuff for a while now, and we really want to kind of get into your your background, what made you want to write your book. Uh, so we can definitely, you know, talk about your book and highlight your book, but also just kind of like where the book has, you know, um, led you to, you know, some of the um, some of the uh, challenges with the book, some of the, you know, exciting things to celebrate with the book. I think our, our listeners want to get um, you know, cause we could read the book and we can apply it and we can benefit from it, but we also want to know what was that process like? What was that journey like to write a book? So let's, let's start there and we'll kind of, we'll, we'll yeah. divest from there. Um, the process to write a book for me was very therapeutic. So first it was the co-author, Melissa Kolsky. I, I do want to give her kudos because she really kind of planted the seed. And then because of our, um, you know, we've been working for this hospital, me at the time for 20 some years and her for 10, you know, we had rapport that allowed us to go and ask for the ability to get a publisher and take the next leap. But the process was planting a seed by someone and then therapeutic on my end and then rapport to get um, an institute to buy into what we were doing. Now the book itself, just so you have reference, was the third attempt at a training manual to integrate pain mechanism classification into a collaborative interdisciplinary team of physical medicine and rehab doctors, psychologists, OTs, PTs, chiropractors, just like, hey, look, we got to speak the language of love and we have to speak a language that's associated with the people that we serve and they're coming in because they're hurting. Hmm. And so the efforts to do that, hey, can we make the hamburger the same like McDonald's and train multidiscipline people in a language that serves, okay, was an undertaking. So it's the third, man, we had written two. We had gone through all the training. We had 10, 15 years of implementing this into practice before the conceptual ability of saying, put it in a book and let the public enjoy the fruits of the labor. So I have to go like this, it's not my work. It's, if, if anything, if anyone says, what is it? I go like this, this is what it is. It's the best of everybody. Hmm. I was on a 10 year craziness after I came out of school going, that didn't work, that didn't work. Two orthopedic manual therapy present, that didn't work. Screw this, I'm not being a PT, I'm gonna be an osteopath. I'm gonna learn muscle injury, that's what I gotta do. Screw that, that doesn't work. I'm going, you know what? I'm gonna try to be a chiropractor. I'll try by teaching them and going through their post-rehabilitation programs. That didn't work. 
all right, well, you know what? It's about my words. I got to become a cognitive behavioral therapist. I got to learn how to interact, get facial. Well, that didn't work. <laughs> and so of 10 years of spending a ton of money and time taking the grades and then sitting at combined sections in 1995 and David Butler did a little spiel in the hand section because that's when he was let in on that area. Wow. And talked about the six reasons why a hand could hurt. Three of those reasons being related to the body and three of those reasons being related to the central nervous system and the brain. And I sat there that day and there was like a revelation of angels that came out because now I went like this. That's why that works then. That's why that works then. That's why that. So all of you guys are right, but you're right at a specific time in a specific person. Hmm. And if I can't get this right, this is going to be frustrating playing whack-a-mole in my whole career. I got to be able to do this. I got to be able to recognize where they are with good assessment, what's dominating, why they hurt, meet their concerns, right? fulfill their expectations if I want an efficient outcome. So that's what happened was a lot of frustration to learn and realize nothing really works. Everybody is great. Everyone's right. But if you can't put it into play, now, that's very difficult to do in the pathoanatomical system. <laughs> I mean, when you look at the numerous amounts of injury diagnoses we have and disease diagnoses, the likelihood of me being right. So then I thought, well, maybe you need another system, pain mechanisms. There's only six, mm -hmm. seven choices there. <laughs> Okay. maybe you got a chance here, you know, just a Chicago-based kid, maybe you got a chance, you know. Now, that was great, but let me humble you like I was humbled. Hmm. As I made my complete shift, screw the pathoanatomical, I'm all about pain mechanisms. Oh, I made a few mistakes there because I didn't recognize that the red flags that were going on were a priority. And I'm over here in the yellows and the oranges and the blues and the whatevers, but I'm not picking up something sinister's going on. And this mm -hmm. overarching pain mechanism ain't gonna work to manage the red flag situation. And then I had an even more humbling, okay, my school was worth everything I went through because blasted, they taught me anatomically how to do good diagnosis. And they taught me anatomically, pathophysiologically and path pathologically how to figure out when people are in active disease that's right and when i had the revelation which occurred kind of you know as the process of the book was being written hey the first thing you got to do is should i be going pathoanatomical or should i be going pain mechanism that's right and if you can't do that as a provider because it's not one or the other it's when do i transition when do I leave an injury disease model to guide care and go into a remission and recovery model? I love that. And, and let's just stop for a section because that is the premise 
of where this fits into your practice. How will it even work for you? If you're going to read the book, oh, thank you so much. But read it with that intent that you actually know the people that really need that approach. Because if you can't pick that up, oh, it's not worth your time reading it. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, we can I, summarize I, that as biopsychosocial right, right. care. You know, when do you switch biologically to psycho? You know, I'd like to change that word anyway to bioemotional social care. Oh, interesting. Why 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 would you change that? Here's this is experience. You know, yeah. I've been running musculoskeletal partnerships for, you know, the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab and and that was wonderful. And I had run their musculoskeletal practice. And that was an amazing experience of learning this administratively. You know, and now I'm involved with this on a different level with uh, Anthem and, you know, a specialty health back pain program direct to consumer. But the reality of why I'm even saying this is, and many have said this, less than three or 4% of the time aggregated are these really psychologically based problems like real clinical depression, anxiety, post-trauma syndromes, schizophrenia, bipolar, like really, truly a psychological situation. Where Less than three or four percent. Yeah. These gifted yep. people, psychologists and psychiatrists in the delicate balance of behavioral and pharmaceutical has to occur but it's prevalence as low. And what's happened to us providers, especially me, I, I'm, you know, I believe me, I've done this to enough people. I had it done to me. I think that's when I learned, what are you doing? You're making this a psych case here. This isn't a psych case. This person is just not, she's not crazy. She's not coping. Hmm. And she emotionally right now is kind of stuck in the frequency of negative and just can't get in the frequency of positive and the law of attraction isn't working for her. Well, what did you do? You do to some kind of depression questionnaire and you make her depressed. And now you, you know, because you can't get it right. So you're like, what? You're depressed. Go see that. <laughs> and yeah. the delicate way we say that, you know, could be destroying people. And we didn't harm them, but we hurt them. Now yeah. our words hurt, you know? And so to really have that understanding that psychologically persistent symptoms is really low prevalence emotional and social reconciliation with whether it's negativity or their past or whatever life has a lot of situations that will never and we're unique but right. when they're when they're not coping with that your brain is so in tune with you <laughs> it knows it it's like this what where can i give symptoms to get their attention so they'll go get help right yeah, what can I wake up in the amygdala? Because that powerful piece of material up there <laughs> remembers everything and can mimic anything. Hmm. And you know, that guy, Alex, he was so nice to me. Maybe he'll give me a help with my rotator cuff again. You know, and that's how it works. So for us to really accept that this effective mechanism is less psychological and more emotional and social, and that us, PTs, OTs, chiropractors, massage therapists, mind-body workers, whatever you are, yeah, you're very capable 
of recognizing when that's dominating and redirecting a care process that really is going at calming the mind and letting the body come along and not focusing on the body. Right. Or not focusing on the psyche. Because those two elements, you may end up using words that hurt people, not heal. So, wow, did I go on a rant? That's all. That's what this is for. <laughs> you know, this is just, it's open-ended. Tell me I've what got, you heard me say, yeah, though. Because, yeah, yeah. you know, I'm all over the place. So tell me what you heard well, me say. Oh, I love that. Putting it, putting it back on me. I appreciate that. I, um, well, I have to tell you, I, just as an example, I, I took a course as well, where we were discussing the biopsychosocial components and, uh, it was interesting because then everyone left the, the, the course and went back to our practices and we talked, you know, a couple of days, a couple of weeks later. And when I say everyone, if there was a group of 20 of us, then, you know, five or six of us were communicating yeah. via text. And, uh, and we were all like, wow, like we we're just, we're just saying everyone's depressed. And it was like, we, we were putting an overemphasis on the psycho component. Uh, and so then we walked into our clinic and that's what we saw. We, we saw all sorts of psychological disorders or potential psychological conditions. And we're like, yeah, we need to like sit these people down and we need to have like a good, you know, Freud session. We need to have a, you know, a total therapeutic, you know, uh, intervention from a psychological perspective. And, um, and I, I realized very quickly that it was, it was the proximity bias on my part. Like I was looking at it and then just started to apply it. And so again, I didn't harm anyone, but I definitely started to hurt someone, you know, psychologically speaking. And, and so to hear you give, um, I'm partial to numbers. Uh, uh, so I appreciate the, you know, the, the three to 4%, it is there. It's just not as prevalent as we might. Um, and we how might, do you identify uh, it? Right. Correct. Yeah. How do you go yeah. in your practice? Because I don't know if it's going to be three or four percent. These are large right. practices yeah. that yeah. are, you know, basically concluding mm -hmm. that three to four percent of your people have to be seeing a psychologist. Right. Okay. Because there are things that need to be attended to that are outside of our practice domain. Right. Now, now like there was surgeon, one, there was one, you know, yes, exactly. Now there, there was there, I realized, we realized the group of us very quickly realized that we were imposing on the psychological effects of their musculoskeletal aches and pains. We were imposing that on them. So we then had to like back off a bit and, and, and readdress our own approach. And then like, and this is the beauty of it is about six months later, someone came into the office and I was just talking to her, trying to, you know, figure out, you know, hey, what, when are her symptoms coming on? What can we do to, you know, work on some symptom reduction? And she goes into a full-blown, like, yeah. panic attack, anxiety attack. And I'm thinking to myself, A, no one ever prepared me in school for someone to just go full, you know, uh, you know, full tilt on me right here. I don't know what to do. But the first thing I did was I kind of, I took her from our big rehab day in our office and I just put her in a room and I was just like, okay, I'll, I'll sit here I'll, as long as it takes. Like you, if you want to be alone, I'll leave you alone. If you want to, if you want just someone to just be here, you know, so I, I, I don't know if that's the right thing to do, but I just sat there with her and, and slowly, you know, surely, you know, it, it, but it made me realize that I was first of all, not equipped to handle something like that. But then the second bit was, this is part of that psychological, that's what that looks like manifested in clinical practice. It can. It can also be manifested within a really serious cry. And it can right. also come in with a great facade of nothing's wrong with me. Right. And so you'll never be able to really 
do that without collecting data. You know, we have to be data miners. Okay. You know, we're people, but we're looking at data and patterns. We're no different. Our brains are wired for patterns. We are investigators for the reasons why they continue to hurt. Okay. And so patterns are important and data mining is really important. And if you're not picking up data, you're going to get blindsided all the time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Because our facades are really good at saying we're okay when we're not. Um, And it's too fearful for me to, to be vulnerable like that. You know, so being able to screen people is really important. And, and that's where I find like, what tools are we using? Because even our questionnaires can give people, it's negatively priming people in the wrong direction. Yeah. And even though academically and regulatorily, we have to be measuring people. Believe me, that's my biggest thing. Come on, show them they're getting better. It's not your outcome, it's theirs, but you own that, the measurement of it. You know, you don't own their outcome, but boy, you own the measurement of it. Yeah, you some someone what? once online, someone someone once said that uh, outcome measures measure outcomes. Exactly, but you have to be able to show people. Now, but this is important. What are you measuring? That's right. Yeah, because really, when you when you think about why they're coming, they're coming because they hurt. So pain, what do we measure in pain? Well, how intense it is, where is it locationally? That's a huge thing you should be measuring. And what's the presence of neuropathic symptoms in your day? Like, those are very simple questions. Right. Now, why else are they there? They're suffering. Well, what is suffering? Suffering has been well-defined in the literature for over 30 years in persistent pain. It's, I am fearful, and so I'm not moving. However you want to call it, fear avoidance, catastrophize. I don't really care. Medicalization. There are so many words for people just don't know if it's good or bad to move. Right. Right? So are you screening that? Because that's a huge concern and suffering element to why people persistently hurt, no matter what mechanism I give it. Are you measuring it? Because if you're not, you don't know. Right. What else is suffering? How they're emotionally coping. It doesn't take a depression questionnaire, but it takes a depression question. Hmm. Okay. Do they have anxiety? Again, I don't need to do a full anxiety questionnaire and give them anxiety. I need to know one question, where are they? Right. Extremely? Not at all. Five, a bit unsure, because I'm afraid to tell you. But in any way, I need to objectify that. That's suffering, how well they're coping with the ups and downs of life. What else is suffering and persistent symptoms? Confidence. Confidence has been really importantly described. And again, I don't think we need huge scales. How well, how confident are you in managing your condition? How confident are you in pain control without pharmacy? That's a good one. Right. How confident are you in your general health? 
How confident are you that you're going to get back to normal you in six months, doing normal LX things in six months? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because that's hope. So when people lose confidence in managing the condition, when they have no confidence in non-pharmacy pain control, when they aren't confident in their general health, when they have zero hope that they'll be back to normal them in six months, look out. That person's really suffering. And you're going to tell me a bridging exercise or some motor control DNS program or some 12 press-ups every two hours going to undo that? (laughs) Not sure. So how well are you measuring confidence, sleep, emotional coping? I don't know if I should move or not. These are huge domains and persistent symptoms that have been well-defined over 30 years. Too many questionnaires though. Right. You need to fall uniquely in one. That's why I love the yellow flag risk form. Two chiros put that together over 25 years ago because they were sick and tired of forms. It's a beautiful story. It's one of the best forms I've ever used in clinical practice to the point that we keep pushing to get more scientific backing on it because not only can that questionnaire screen for you, it can predict a little bit and it can be like a GPS on where you need to go to build a foundation for healing. Plus it could also be very monumental in word selection. Right. Yeah, because your goal is to have words that heal. Unfortunately, in practice, we have a lot of words that hurt. And some of us, unfortunately, have gone to the level of using words that harm. So Hmm. let's talk about that for a second. Let's talk about hurt versus harm, harmful words. Let's start with hurting words. Yeah, let's do it. Let's talk about harm words. Okay. Harm words, in my professional opinion, again, working with many people that numerous sessions to get them out of that unfortunate circumstance. It's never the person that said it is doing it. It's the negative person. Prophesizing people's outcome. Hmm. Oh yeah, you're never going to walk up and down those stairs with the amount of bone on bone space you got going there. Who the hell made you God to prophesize that this person could never do stairs? You know, we should never be prophesizing someone's outcome relative to any findings on any imaging tests. You know, one of the values of working at the Rehabilitation Institute of Chicago, who's now known as Shirley Ryan Ability Lab for over 35 years and serving the breadth of disability from catastrophe brain injury to functional movement disorders. God knows why you have this. One thing we learn, miracles happen. Miracles happen and they don't happen because you told them about what's going on in their body. It's completely about what they want to believe. I mean, I've seen people, you know, I've seen doctors stand over the bed and go, look, I've seen nurses stand over therapists. I should even just beat up my own profession. I've seen them stand over the bed and say, I know, but look, you're a C5, six quad. You're not walking ever again. You're ever, you're not going to be able to do that. So let's focus on what you can do. I get that. But the fact that you opened your mouth to say you will never do that again, that was a hurt word. Now that person had to take that word and they had to either say, am I going along with you or am I proving you wrong? Right. Yeah. And I've seen some prove you wrong people. Whoa. And one of the things that every one of those prove you wrong people had to do was to go back to the person that said it and said, see, you were wrong. And 
And that is so powerful, but not all the people can do that. Right. I've also seen what those words have done to people in the sense of where their outcome was. Could have been so much better, but blaming the condition now prevented them from ever getting anywhere. And they blame the condition because they were told. So those are hurt words, prophesizing outcomes on people. I never walk into a session with a person and I've learned this now because I'm old where I don't go this one hundred percent. They're getting better hundred percent. There'll be zero on that yellow flag risk form. They will actually come in and tell me zero pain. If I'm not shooting for the stars for them in my role in the partnership like that, in my mind, everything, I'm now the reason why they probably won't get better. Hmm. So it's hard. I won't own the outcome, but I'll own the measurement of it because I'm going to show them. But I'm not going to use words that hurt. I will not prophesize their outcome. Their outcome is theirs. Now, let's talk about words. That's words that harm. Let's talk about words that's, that, that hurt. That's really yeah. good. That, yeah, I think that, that definitely in our professions, there's a, there's a good amount of prophesizing. So yeah, that's really good. Yeah, yeah go on. Yeah, just don't do it, you know? Yeah. Until yeah. you're deemed the person that can do that. That's right. Yeah. You just will, you'll be wrong every time. It's a lot, yeah. it's a lot of burden to bear too. So I, you know, even from the sake of self-preparation, don't do it. But words that, that hurt. Words that hurt. Oh, this is a good one. Um, no, I, I'm sorry. If you have pain while you're doing that bend the knee exercise, I don't want you to do it. Anytime you associate pain with movement and then end it with don't do it. That's right. You hurt that person. I don't care. I, I don't really care. I'll go up and litigate this in front of anybody I have to litigate it from. That person's central nervous system, especially that thalamus, and communication to the DRGs and the DRGs themselves, because they have gray matter and they can pick up contacts. Everybody just switched to protect mode. Yeah, you're right. Something bad's happening when that pain goes up. You're so right. That's right. And they lock down. Now, how do you rewrite that to a healing situation? Because it's a rewrite. Hey, look, you're bending that knee. Now, have you noticed? I know you're noticing it hurts, but look at the motion. Look at how much motion you're getting. Take note. Look at that. Get your eyes involved. Get your hands involved. Because if that motion never changes, that pain is good. In fact, I want you to cause so much blasted pain to the point you like want to break it because it's going to get better. Because that's good pain. And you should be moving and you should be doing that. Now, everyone has their own tolerance. So if you're telling me, oh, Annie, I'll nurture that. That range of motion is getting better. I agree with you. It's not changed. Even if you have to get the goniometer out with a five degree error, it's yeah. not changed. Right? But I can only tolerate. 
a four out of 10. All right, no worries. Let's, we'll go for four then. I know the literature says I can do anything between four and seven. Yeah, well, that was good. You weren't studied in that per whatever. So let's really stay focused on you. We can rewrite that whole scenario. Now, those words were healing. I may never see that person again because they now are walking out with shit in an A. Excuse my French. Pain is good. That really screwed with the internal model of assessment. That rebooted that brain to not second guess everything, to go to the video camera, movement. Yeah. There's no crime at that scene. Look at that video camera's clean. Even though that guy said he did it. Pain lies, motion never does. And if you can get somebody to really help have that, if you can rewrite that element where you wanna say, cause you can see pain on their face and you really wanna just wash your hands with it because you can and you don't wanna deal with the legal issues of them saying, well, you told me. Cause it's easy. I can say, yeah, you're right, man, it hurts, don't do it. Bam, I gave them a right. license right there. Right. Or I can take the extra minutes and formulate a secondary form of assessment in motion that gets them to question and possibly accept now as good. How, how do you how do you try to communicate between that that good pain that you just described? And that fine line between this pain or these sensations that I'm experiencing, these are beneficial for the overall recovery. And okay, this is actually not good. I'm I'm actually tilting the scales into the other direction where I'm actually doing maybe a little bit more. Um, I don't want to say harm, but I'm doing a little bit more um, to delay the the proper recovery. How do you kind of communicate or navigate those waters? Well, you know, that's why we love repeated movement assessment, right? Because when we're repeatedly moving them, we're exposing what's going to happen to that range of motion. We're exposing what's going to happen to that function. And we're exposing what's going to happen to those symptoms. So having the person be a part of the investigation with me because I don't know the answer, but I will do the assessment to get the answer. Because yes, yeah, sometimes when we get injured, we're dealing with injury pain and we should only be moving so much, but that will be very reflected in the more I'm moving it, I'm losing motion. Mm -hmm. I'm altering the functional performance for the worse statistically. Right. Okay. Because often when people transition out of injury pain into recovery pain, pain's in the same place. <laughs> Sometimes it's the same intensity. So the place and the intensity, uh, unfortunately, don't give us the answer. And if I use that, which I did over here, now over here, that could be destructive. 
Right. But my repeated movement assessment here now goes, oh, shoot, look at this, babe. I'm moving this thing more. It's getting more better. In fact, it's moving better in another direction. Look at them. They were 10 seconds quicker on their 10 meter SSP. It's a gigantic drop. Oh, their pain's up a little bit. Oh, come on. Two thirds. Better motion, better function. This is good pain. Haven't you had or ever, ever, ever had a workout where you, you know, but my motivation was to get a half inch off my thighs. So I'll deal with three days of can't get up and down off the toilet because I worked my body so yeah. hard. Yeah. Why doesn't this be the same thing? Just doesn't show up in my muscles. It shows up in my condition. So this understanding of the difference between injury pain and recovery pain and the effects of repeated movement and using more evidence than just the pain is huge for us in the healing world. Right. It makes one, us more credible. Two, it returns control to the person because they can do that assessment on themselves a billion times a day and they can conclude the same answer without you. And how do you know your person that you're serving needs this attention? I give this up to everyone because I know you have these people on your caseload. Uh, Alex, it's Annie again. Yeah, what's up, Annie? So good to hear from you again. Yeah, hey, oh, I just loved our session last time. You like just totally blew my mind with this idea that I can actually cause pain to get over pain. But do you think I could do the elliptical today? Do you, do you think I should try the elliptical? Do you think the elliptical is safe for me? When your peeps are asking you if it's safe for them to do, or, hey, what should I do? Know that they don't have the skill. Hmm. They can be running businesses. They're so smart. <laughs> right. They can appear and probably giving you stock advice that could change your life but they don't know how to discern whether it's safe for them to do something or not. Right. Don't ever not take the opportunity to realize, Oh, and all my beautiful words, they still don't get it. Hmm. They will ask you and ask you incessantly. And if they're asking you incessantly, they don't know. That means you haven't done enough work on it. They aren't a part of the investigation. And your words now, even though they may be healing intent, could end up being hurting. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's the toughest part about how, you know, toughest part. It's tough. It's just, it's just hard. Yeah. Having basic principles, good reputed movement assessments, uh, good collaboration on what you're doing. Hey, this is really solidly healed. This is great. Yeah. You have no more injury pain. You have recovery pain. That's right. What's that mean? That means I'm going to have to cause pain to get over pain. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. In our clinic, we we describe kind of the, the primary, we kind of ma have mapped out, you know, the patients, what we think is uh, a consistent patient journey with us. So from when they first enter our world until hopefully they have they have been empowered and then they can go live really, you know, an, an uninterrupted life with or without pain. We recognize that that might, there might be, you know, a small modicum of, of, of pain that they live with. Um, but we, we start off by saying the, the primary thing that 
um, the primary goal is pain relief. Like that's what people, you know, book appointments for is to get pain relief. But we start almost immediately talking about the second, uh, you know, the secondary uh, goal that they have, which is guidance. They actually want to be able to talk to us about what we think they should do, what they shouldn't do, which are all guidance-based questions. They're not clinical-based questions. They're yeah. confidence questions. Yeah. They want you yeah. to impart confidence in them. That's they right. Want you to return the control to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we we choose our, our words very carefully, and we hate answering a question with a question. So when they say, like in your 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 example, hey, should I do? You know, do you think it's safe for me to do the elliptical? Again, I hate answering a question with a question, but we ask some variation of, you know, what do you think would happen if you did the elliptical for 10 minutes, for 30 minutes, for an hour? Exactly. You know, what, what do you, what do you think would happen? And then they kind of start to problem solve for themselves. Um, and they either talk themselves into doing it or they talk themselves out of doing it, in which case that had nothing to do with us. That was just them sharing their belief system. And what they really were doing was calling us to reinforce their belief system um, and so we we actually just try to sit and listen to them about what are your beliefs? Are they consistent with your recovery process? Or do we actually need to use our words, use our communication skills and and let you know, not not like a a, a brute force, you know, like, oh, well, don't do that. That's dumb. Like, we're not going to oh, we're right. not going to. We're not going to speak to them that way. We're going to, we're going to tactically flank them. You know, we're going to yeah. work. There's, there's no better way than by asking questions, in which case you come to the conclusion that we wanted for you all along, um, which is like an art of negotiation, believe it or not. But it's, it's also knowing what it's knowing what's going to happen because yeah. look, there's three elements. They're coming. They hurt. They have pain. Mm -hmm. They're suffering. It's changed their life. Okay. And they're not, functioning. They're not doing what they want to do. So now when you look at those three entities, because having studied this like just too much, almost to the point of nauseam, like, God, this is so true. Why can't we get this right? Suffering is the first thing that changes. They're less, they're a little less fear avoidant. They're not so concerned about movement and activity. Right. Oh, look at them. Look at emotionally, they're coping a little better. Oh my God, they're sleeping a little better. Oh, look at this. They're a little more confident. So the first domain, like I love the yellow flag grist form, questions three through 13 are the first to change. They actually change before the functional measure. And this is where people make a lot of errors in their practice because they're not doing good suffering measures. So they have a function measure and they have a pain measure. And they've been doing all this great work and the suffering's changing enormously by statistical things, but they didn't measure because suffering changes first, the fear avoidance first, the emotions, confidence, sleep gets thrown in there relative to certain domains. The second thing that changes is their function. And the last thing that changes is their pain. Now, what do they expect when they see you? Do they expect pain to change first, suffering to change first, or function? They expect pain. That's right. And if we don't help them understand that we're treating three entities, the where and why it hurts, the how it's affected your life, and let's get back to you. If they don't really understand the elements of what we're embarking on and that 
how it affected your life will be the first thing that changes. And that's why we're measuring it. And let's value it because, oh my gosh, I need to build your confidence. You're like basically putting it on paper for me. That's right. Yeah. We're going to lose them or we're doing exactly what's happening. And the insurance companies, what, wow, six visits, you couldn't get this one better. Well, you didn't even measure fear avoidance. You probably did a hell of a lot of work in fear avoidance, but you didn't measure it. So now you have nothing to show for everything. And you think that person's going to give you six more visits? No, they're not. And this is where we have to be not afraid and we have to figure out. Now, I'll ask everyone. I don't care what form you use. I use a little 13 questions because it's easy. It's quick. It's valid. It's reliable. It gives me a lot of information. But you have to have in your practice, if you're going to meet any regulatory or academic guidelines, you have to have a fear avoidance measure. You have to have an emotional measure. You have to have a sleep measure. And you have to have a confidence measure. That's four, four different questionnaires. Now, buyer beware, because you could have four questionnaires and you give it to those people. You could be negatively priming through all those areas in those four questionnaires to the point of nauseam that you didn't need that much detail. And that's our problem. And that was the whole reason why Craig Liebenson, Steve Yeoman developed the yellow flag risk form as a um, advancement of the OSPRO back then, because they were like, look, let's get four fear avoidance questions. Let's get two emotional, one depression, one anxiety. That's all we need. Let's get four confidence, but let's get the right confidence, general condition, general health, pain control, and hope that they get back. That's right. And one sleep question. And let's just put it all together so that we can understand our peeps and we can show them they're improving because this is the first that changes. Then they were brilliant, these two men, because they put question one and two, how bad is it over the last week, which is where we are neuropathically and scientifically right now with how we should be asking about pain intensities over the last week. Man, they were 35 years ahead of where we should be. And then the second question, again, brilliant by them, is the frequency of your day that you have a neuropathic symptom. I challenge people who are listening to us, make sure your measures are concise. Make sure you're covering the areas that are gonna change so that you can show not only you, them, and the people that pay for you, that you actually are a productive person in this person's life. Hmm. Because it's going to be the providers that step up and get the patients and the payers on board. That's right. Yeah. I just and want to touch got, on, on one thing. Make sure we stay away from too, too far into the scientific part of it because they have excessive amount of measures. Yeah. 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 I just want to touch real quick on one thing that you mentioned about um, potentially on our marketing, do we do we need to do a better job of conveying what we're actually trying to do? Because you mentioned we can actually make an impact on their life, uh, you know, as one of the first changes that we'll see, but their pain might not. So if someone's marketing on their website, you know, we get people out of pain. Um, uh, excuse me, we get people out of pain fast. You know, we get people out of pain. Period. We get people out of pain. We get people. You just see it all over. It, should that should we be considering maybe updating some of our messaging? that we have within our businesses? Um, you know, my my thoughts on this, just because of my having my own business, <laughs> being able to do that. So I, I'm a little, you know, operating there. 
you know, plus my current role working with, with the insurance companies a little bit more and direct to consumer point solutions for this, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, I do believe we need to be able to really get our message better. Okay. And, and think about it in this, I'm going to say it because then I think that will yield a better response. You know, I've got short-term solutions. I'm an invent, I'm an interventionalist. I've got your short-term solution. But your short-term solution is not your long-term solution. I like that. Yeah. So I am a practice that not only provides your short-term solution, but I bridge the gap to your long-term. The long-term solution is that we prevent the pain from reoccurring. Pain is normal. Persistence is not. Hmm. So... In our long-term solution, we're preventing reoccurrence by good lifestyle habits. Okay, so be a practice, even if you're about short-term solution, good, but call it what it is. Right. And whether you really are the practice that is going to do the long-term part, the prevention part, the follow-up part, the nuts and bolts of meeting people where they're at with suffering and returning to function to get rid of the pain. Right. Even if you are, or if you're not, prophetically talk about the needs for them to have it. And whether you partner with somebody or whether you build your practice to the next level of mastery, because you're so good here, you want to get good here. That's up to you. But that long-term solution has to be a part of our verbiage and it has to be wrapped around prevention. And the prevention is not pain, pain's normal. It's the reoccurrence. I think that's probably been one of the, the biggest enlightenments that I've had in seven years of practice and, and, and whatnot is that I thought very pathoanatomically, very kinesiopathologically where... I could eradicate someone's movement dysfunctions and and eradicate trigger points and and all that stuff and and then they would be pain free and then I thought my job is done, and and now what I'm realizing is well the the game has just begun, uh, <laughs> and how how naive I was yeah and how naive I was uh, in that in that stage because a lot of the patients that I treated in year one two and three made their way back in four five and six um, and. Well, I don't know why they came back, but they, they came back anyways. And, and it was, uh, I think because of the report, just like the, oh. the experience. And it was, oh. I got, I got, I got the short-term solution that they were looking for. And now in year seven and a half, probably it'll be eight in April that I've been out of school. And now I'm, I'm slowing down. I'm having longer conversations with people about, yes, I understand your short-term, you know, interests, but like, what, what does the long-term look for you? And I'm having a little bit more of those deeper you know, relate relationship-based questions because I, I believe it or not, I care about them. I, I don't want to just, you know, um, just work on the short term. But if that's what they want, I, that's what I'll do. If it's if it's obvious right in front of me, I got to talk about the elephant in the room about the long term, you know, effects that this might have. So, anyways, I, I just thought that I'd share that with you. That it's 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 not like new grads 
have to have to master this right away. It's just a part of their career journey that we've all gone through. And and I I'm following in your footsteps. I'm trying to trying to contribute uh, as the next you know component to my clinical career. Um, well, you're but go on, on your I'm, way. Yeah, I mean, we're giving yeah. advice right now to the young clinicians. Whatever, which I am still one seven years to me. Isn't that still young? That's got to be still young. I'm still young. I've just started 38. So, okay. So, I mean, 38 serving people have only had two weeks off, like two weeks where I really literally didn't have or see a patient for the purposes of patient care. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I don't know how that went by like that, but you know, in, in the experience, but that's, but here's our advice, you and I together. Allow yourself to be a beginner. Allow yourself to be a beginner. No one starts being excellent. Hmm. And this is a very competitive industry, healthcare. There are so many stakeholders. Okay. And what brings people back, because you want them back. You want to be their partner in this for life. This isn't like you, you don't, I mean, you're not looking to have a revolving door. No one is. You know, what brings them back is the rapport you have, you know, but that rapport comes because you've humbled yourself to be a beginner. It doesn't come because of your expert status. Right. Yeah. And, and that's a bit of advice. So Take it where it leads you. I mean, if I give you other advice, my my other advice, to, you know, I wish we had this when I was starting was chase what you're good at. Chase your giftedness. It comes easy to you. God is trying to work through you. So when you recognize what you're good at, chase that. Don't chase your passion. Mm. All right. Your passion may yield a lot of, you know, dead ends and, um, but what comes natural to you is really where you should be putting all your, your efforts in. Cause then you're resting while you're working and it's an incredible career Hmm. and you will leave a legacy because your demonstration of what you were going through as a beginner and your demonstration that you chased and used your giftedness will be things that people really kind of want to like be a part of. It looks fun, yeah. you know, I mean, like it really yeah. does. And then your ability to get everyone to make the hamburger the same and have a fruitful practice and write books and all that kind of stuff happens, right? It just happens, you know? So two piece of advice, they may be um, a lot to take in, but you know, don't deny what you've started. I love it. That's and I, and it resonates with me. So I really appreciate yeah, it. I've sure. I've 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 almost done like a 180 on the the word passion because I've 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 been told, you know, follow your passion and and that that led me to become a cheerleader for just about anything for any reason at any given time. And then that time period ended and I realized, well, I wasn't really passionate about that to begin with. Mm. Um but where I kind of took a step back and and realized and was aware of you know the my my god-given abilities and some of the skills that i have now i can focus and harness those skills and the passion is following you know the passion is following um and uh and so i i just i greatly appreciate that uh and i think it's it's wise 
Well, it's wise counsel for you to just encourage us to, you know, give yourself that grace, that freedom to, to, you know, act like a, a new grad, act like you're new in this because we've, none of us have made it right. There's another guy named Greg Lehman who I've had on the podcast a, oh, yeah, a, while, a while back. He talks about, uh, he actually says this at a seminar. I've probably said this a couple of times on different podcast shows, but it was like eye opening to me where he said, you know, it's like, we're all on this clinical journey. We're climbing this clinical hill and no one ever reaches the top, but we think when we reach the top that, you know, other people will be there and you're, you're, you're kind of all alone. There's no one on the other side of that fence. No one else is there. No one else is coming. Like we're just kind of on this journey, but there's not really uh, like an apex. And that's kind of his point is that we're all, we're all trying to move up, uh, upwards. Um, and I love that because I think that gave me, that gave me peace, you know, that, that, sure. uh, that really, that really did. Cause it, it didn't, I, I stopped comparing myself to other people and I just started realizing that like I'm on this individual journey and now I need to be able to share that journey and that experience with others um, along the way, much like you're doing, not just with me, but with the, the listeners of today's show. Oh, I, I, one, I love Greg and I love his comments. I love his approach. I mean, you know, I mean, we are all just taking each other's stuff and recycling it. I hope everyone knows it. I mean, the world of her book is literally everyone else's stuff put into a dynamic framework in clinical reasoning in how that's all it is. It's a how book. Right. Okay. Yeah. And, and it gets you to just shift your mind over here because they don't need a pathoanatomical diagnosis. They need a pain mechanism diagnosis. As you shift, you serve. Okay. And if you have how to the the have tos, like, you know, I know when Melissa and I wrote the book, I'm like, just write a book on what they have to do, right? They've got to be able to put the two breads with the meat and the lettuce and the and they have to. Now, let's value all of it though. Because if we value all of it and we speak the value, many people will be doing the same thing. And that's what I learned. I mean, Look, having this book for 25 years through the hospital, like watching it unfold itself, then doing the validation article in 2016 about the method, literally about the approach, you know, and then having the opportunity to study our practice, 34,000, 40,000 patients and really seeing the breadth of what was happening. And it didn't matter the diagnosis, the age, the gender, that just didn't matter. I was like a Bill Murray movie. I mean, it was really... It really was the context, you know, that, wow, a lot of those things that we thought mattered didn't really matter, right? Now the book comes out to the public in 2015. This is something we were doing since 1997. You know, so to me, it's like old news. This is like new news, you know. Then it was really, it dawned on me that, wow, this book also needs courses to train it i mean there's no way you just throw a book on the public you've been training this i mean so you know having that uniqueness of a book and some training courses to go with it really helps people integrate pain mechanisms into their practice on a half to level right right you, you got to be able to do the half twos you know like you've got somebody dominated by central sensitivity come on i don't care whether you call that mechanism fear avoidance i don't care if you're in the dim sims cognitive functional therapeutic approach to me however pain reprocessing theory i i really to me 
how you context the fact that this person's overprotective alarm system is going chaos because they don't know whether or not the pain they're having is good and safe. They get to the root. That person mm -hmm. needs to know the traffic light and they need to get back to things they're not doing. Now that's a hack too. Sure, if you wanna put a little aromatherapy with them, a little meditation and mindfulness work, you wanna have them come in a couple of days a week for some needles and some massage, whatever. Don't think those are gonna make them think this is safe and for me to do. And don't think those are gonna gradually get them back to what they gotta do. Right. And that's what this book's about. It's the have tos. Because if you can't do the have tos, all the extra stuff isn't going like to provide a, a long-term solution. And that's, you know, but the book's about preventing pain recurrence. It's about you identifying the dominating mechanism. It's about you making sure that you're delivering the words and the moves that are relative to that mechanism. So you mentioned the the traffic light a minute ago. For those that aren't aware of your your traffic light guide, um, could you elaborate a little bit, just real quick, on on your traffic system? Well, look, the, let's agree the traffic light is about the best way to make decisions. I mean, we use it in every industry. Okay, so that that shouldn't that's not like some genius move. It's just everyone gets the traffic light. Even kids get red light, yellow light, green yeah. light. Oh, yeah. We play the yeah. game when we're young for crying out yeah. loud. Okay. So, yeah. so this isn't any element of brilliance. Okay. All right. It's a basic cognitive behavioral therapeutic tool because it's identifying the activities one isn't doing because of the pain. Hmm. You're really getting to their activities that they believe and think are causing harm. This is where we make big mistakes with central sensitivity and gradual exposure programs because we're gradually exposing them to things they're not really afraid of. Right. Yeah. Well, that, that'll take you on a 20-week course of nowhere. Okay. So get to the nitty gritty. What is it? that you believe you're really going to do harm at, because that's what we have to use the traffic light guide to discern it either is happening or not happening. Let's answer the question. So once you discern those activities and you get an idea of their baseline symptoms and you agree on what secondary piece of evidence you're going to use, whether it's an emotion, whether it's a function, what they can trust beyond a reasonable doubt that this is safe, that's a collaborative approach called the harm check. Where an error is made, and a lot of therapists using tools, they pick their, their harm check. I'm like, no, 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 theirs. You know, if you want to suggest one, ask them, do, will they trust it? Because if they won't trust it, then it's not worth putting on the paper. There you go. So if we can't get the context for the traffic light, it doesn't become one of the greatest tools ever in your practice. Now, the lights are easy. And you got a red light, you're bordering injury. Uh, I think you should stop. The action would be to stop. And the reason why you know that is because the number one thing written in the top is you've lost over 50% of your motion or function. I love having people call me up that, you know, um, hey, 
Oh God, it's been years. What are you up to? Catching up. Yeah, you know, you told me to call when I lose 50% of my emotion because that may be a reason that I should stop. And I'm like, yeah, geez, thanks for the call. What's going on? I'm not having any pain. But all of a sudden, I can't control my foot. You you think something might be going on? I'm like, yes. I think I think it's time. Where are we going? Are we going to the PCP? Are we going to the ER? Where are we headed? Because we're headed somewhere. Right. Right? So I love when we've gotten them so far off of pain that they're not even like, don't you think that should hurt? I said, not necessarily. You rupture a tendon, it ain't going to hurt. But your foot won't work anymore. So the loss of function and motion of greater than 50% is a big indication. And it's not to try to convince people there are no red lights. There are red lights. Right. Okay. But it's not based on your pain. It's based on the loss of motion and function. Let's be honest. Now, a yellow light is, well, my function is the same. My motion is the same. Boy, this hurts. This hurts a lot more than my baseline. And it's hurting and persistent. Mm. Mm. Now, a yellow light doesn't mean that you've had harm because there's no loss of motion, but it does mean you're hurting, but it's a safe hurt. It's the old little too much, too fast hurt. Yep. Yeah. We all done it. Sometimes we like it. Sometimes we don't. So if we're sitting in a red or sitting in a yellow light, a yellow light, completely from an action step is, hey, pace. Your choice A is to keep going, it's going to turn green. Or your choice B is to lessen it a little bit till it is green. But you're not doing harm. And you know you're not doing harm because your motion's not lost. Right. And that intellective analysis has to happen for people because the majority of people, especially with central sensitivity, view all yellow lights as red. Hmm. And they view all green lights as yellow. And green is baby push, baby push. Your pain's increasing, but it's back to baseline. So when people own that, doesn't matter whether they're exercising, doesn't matter whether they're moving, doing activities, head pain shortly, head pain long time. If they can literally master that and explore those activities and tell you what color the light is on the exploration, you are going to shift completely the sensitivity resting which within the cognitive brain. The thalamus and the amygdala will come down a little bit. They don't need to be so protective or predictive because you're consciously overriding an unconscious learned behavior by going, no, this is a yellow light. What does it say? Keep going. Don't stop. Use flare-up plan if necessary. Stop thinking negative about your problem. This is safe pain, no harm. Make them say it out loud and command it. So the traffic light guide, I can't tell you what a wonderful tool it is. And, you know, if we want to give it to your audience, I'd love to, because it's just so easy. Yeah, we'd love to have it. Yeah. Yeah. But people have a lot of traffic light guide approaches. 
yeah, I, I don't want like this is just another one. <laughs> well, I think the the clinical you know indicators are really pertinent. So I know I, I'm I'm uh, I appreciate the explanation and going into the background of it. And and you're right, it is kind of rudimentary. I'm driving in the car yesterday, and our our six year old and our four year old they're like, oh, there's red, there's green, go, you got to go, dad. I'm like, oh, um, but it's it, so I understand that. I think our listeners are going to have a greater appreciation for the the what the clinical significance is based on your, you know, what, how you just so, um, you know, perfectly described and all that's in the book, right? All that yellow flag. Yeah, chapter six, all in there. Man. Chapter chapter six. Six. There you go. Yeah. 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 If you're, if you're struggling with people that are kind of dominated by central sensitivity, you know, they're, they've moved a little proximal in the nervous system. They're the DRGM beyond, right? Yeah. You yeah. need to really master that first art of calming down cognitively what's happening the discernment of safe okay because a lot of times if we can get that in a state of balance the limbic brain the emotional brain will follow suit yeah it will it's so good yeah so good. And, and we don't have to make people feel psychological emotional or social if we'll just do the rudimentary is what I'm feeling okay for me to keep doing because I've been told and I've been reading. And so now I'm believing and thinking. There's layers to all this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> chapter six is a good chapter. Uh, That's right. Yeah. I never intended, we never intended the book to be read from cover to cover. Those that have done it, God bless you. I have done it several times. In fact, I had to reread it. Because uh, this university wanted me to run a World of Hurt summer course, which was great. I mean, like, have you ever reread your own book and go, damn, this is good? <laughs> I'm not really no, that kind I of a confident person. But yeah. I was like, wow, this is good. Then I'm talking to my buddy, Mike Geraci, who I love dearly. He's a PM&R doc out of New York. And I mean, he's been a mentor for me for forever. He He's like this your book is 10 to 15 years ahead of time. And I said, it is, he goes, oh yeah. The processing cool. place where we are on just, should we have a pain mechanism approach? Like we have a pathoanatomical approach. We're at the, we're right at the cusp of everyone saying yes, but we're not in agreement with what that nomenclature looks like. You, right. you have the IESP, God bless them. They are making that standard with nociceptive, neuropathic, nosoplastic. I mean, they're saying, come on, get on the train, body, nerve, or brain, right? Yeah. Right? But, you know, the reality is nociceptive can be subgrouped again, inflammation or ischemia. I mean, those are 180 from each other. That was the 2016 validated study of like, it matters because you do different treatments for those mechanisms. Yeah. Nosoplastic can be subgrouped three ways. Wow. Special sensitivity, effective, and motor autonomic. And, and until the world really grapples that we can actually subgroup the central nervous system and the, the place where we are right now is where we were, I don't know, maybe 20 years ago with nonspecific low back pain. You mean we got to classify that stuff? Well, we're in the same ball of wax with chronic pain. Stop calling it chronic pain. Start calling what it is, a central nervous system pain mechanism. 
understand what the central nervous system is, your DRGs in your brain. In fact, actually three different areas in your brain. And no, you aren't doing fMRIs on people. That's not what's needed. You need to listen to them. Just like we opened up, because listening will actually unveil the patterns and characteristics that yield one mechanism dominating another. And you intently want to get air in that area. Because if you knock over that mechanism, you knock everything on. But if you're going to be over here treating a knee dysfunction, remodeling a knee dysfunction, and man, going at it, grasped and doing whatever you got, man, go for it. And this person's over here going, holy crying out loud, man, he's breaking my knee, man. I think he's hurting me. But I like him because he's a nice looking guy. I mean, that person's never going to get better. He probably had a dysfunction. But their brains, the top-down processing has processed it into a harm. Yeah. Yeah. He's got red light thinking in a green light situation. He's going to get rear-ended. I mean, it's, it's a no-brainer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There is and somebody out there I've... that's on their phone. Bam! What the hell? It was a green light, buddy. What were you stopping for? Yeah. Yeah. And I think as clinicians, sometimes we we take the credit for the 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 treatment when it's, um, uh, well, we take the credit for the treatment when it could be attributed to other factors that, that involve the patient's, you know, perceptions and beliefs, you know what I mean? So I think we also, we, we need to be quite aware of our, what we're actually doing when we're treating and how the effects that we know go into treating another human being. If I said that correctly, that that's, I think. You said it, but you basically practically are saying, hmm, maybe I should close my sessions, which with what is called teach back or reflective listening. And I could do that with you. I could say, hey, yo, Alex, um, hey, give me the top two things that you're picking up from our little conversation today. You know, and I could say that to my patient, yo, Bobby, this has been great. Talk to me. Tell me what you're picking up today. What's your take home message? Yeah. 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 Well, I have been so humbled by that, you know, to the point where, well, you really did not help Bobby today, did you now? Because what their take back is not intently what I was saying. And when we get good at reflective listening and teach back, which is what you're talking about, mm -hmm. to the point where we end every session that way. And we conglomerate and say, okay, we're on the same page. Should we write it down? Should I text you it? Should I email it? Should I videotape you? How are you going to remember this and learn this? Yeah, one of the other things that we we try to do uh, and incorporate in our reflective listening to make sure that the message that we've conveyed about them is default positive, not um, you know, already adding to the massive amounts of negativity that's going on in their mind without any involvement from us. Like we just try to be very positive um, and real, you know, we're not, we're not trying to be fake. Um, but one of the questions we ask our patients is, um, you know, if you were to head home and, and discuss with your spouse, what we did here today, what, what would you say, you know, how would you describe what I said was wrong and how long it will take you know, for you to recover from this. And then whatever they say is just gold because it tells you how clear you were, how precise with your speech um, or how much uh, medicalization of your terminology you used. I'm guilty of that. I get into the, well, you have intra-abdominal pressure and you have disc space and you have intrathecal and you have, you know, schmorls notes. And I just start like, so my, my terminology has gone 
you know, like a 180 from more medical and more into like, you know, the Michael Scott rule where he's like, you know, tell me it like I'm a, I'm a five-year-old. Okay. Now tell me like I'm a three-year-old, you know, it's like, that's, I've gone all the way back to just making it as simple without being, you know, underly, you know, uh, informative, but just so that they can process it, uh, understand it, process it, and then repeat it to someone else. And it's accurate. It's not, you know, like I'm telling them something completely out of left field. So that that's our form of reflective listening is that they also can repeat it to a, a loved one or a spouse. Well, a you're partner. actually, you're actually taking it to the level beyond participation, which is what reflective listening does. It gets them to participate, but you're taking it to the level, which is really kind of anchoring learning theory which is called delegating, where you actually assign them to teach someone else what they learned today. Um, the teacher becomes the master. So, you know, the tell and the sell, the tell is me just vomiting information. Here, take more paperwork. Yeah. You know, nothing. I'm just tell, tell, tell. Sell is I'm giving you my why. Okay, well, tell and sell never get behavior change. They never get learning. They're a bunch of education, but no learning. It's not about the education. It's about the learning. Lor Lorimer and their group did it best, man. I mean, I love when you prove yourself wrong, and they basically did. Pain science education and all the stuff that came out of their Explain Pain movement, I mean, since the 2000s, you know, we're all branching off of that. That was their great work to begin with. But what really came forth as they started to study that was, yeah, everyone can receive the education, but there's no guarantee. The guarantee of change comes with the one that learned. That's mm. right. Shoot, man, I got to change my whole lines now. It's not pain science education. It's pain science learning. Well, what does that mean? Well, I better get them participating. Let's talk. Call it reflective. Call it whatever you want. But it's a participation. So there's an engagement. So there's a possibility that the conscious mind cannot select those unconscious already existing patterns, but you don't get them to really become the master of their domain until they can teach it. That's right. Yeah. And so delegating what yeah, some people at home, who at home can you tell this to? And they're like, Oh, no one. I'm like, you got a cat, a stuffed animal. You got anybody that's going to smile at you that, you know, because just getting them to voice it That's could right. be really freeing for people. So it's good to hear how well you've built these really tangible theories into your practice, Alex. I mean, good for you guys. You know. Oh well, well, thank you. It's been it's been a process. Like, there's it no doubt. You know, the, I I always shared this one too with with interns, Cairo PT interns that come in, even high school interns. Um, you know, I was a big organizer for DNS for, for many years. And so I remember the first time in clinical practice, I found, you know, the open scissor syndrome where I was like, okay, chest pelvis, you know, a disassociation. And I talked for like 30 minutes about the importance of the pelvic floor, intra-abdominal pressure, chest positioning, even the neck. I went into like 30 minutes and this guy looked at me and was like, yeah, so like, what do we do? And I was like, well, I've just, I've just told you, like, I just told you for like the last 30 minutes, the importance on all this. And uh, so I thought my job was done, right? I just educated him on why I thought he was experiencing some, you know, movement issues, why he was having pain when he was getting under a bar. Like I just, like I, I, I was Sherlock Holmes. I just put it together for him, right? Like he should be thanking me. And, uh, and I had almost that, like that arrogance about me, like, 
No wonder your MRI was clean. No wonder your doctor doesn't know what to do with you. No wonder you did, you know, six weeks of PT and and like you were doing the same exercises as the shoulder, you know, replacement guy who's in his seventies, but that's not you, you know, no wonder you're a, a bit frustrated. And here I am that's just like <laughs> arrogantly saying like, you should be thanking me. Cause I just diagnosed your, like your primary and secondary problem. And then I had a, not a 90, I had a 180 degree switch when I realized like how arrogant it was of me to basically impose on him why I thought he should be thanking me. He should be thanking himself. Yeah. Because he actually said, I don't get what you're saying. Yeah. 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 So we should, like you said earlier, he, we should be building that bridge that he walks across, but we're not. We're not doing anything other than every session, just laying down a, a, a laying down a, a, what are they called? Laying down a step. We're just laying down a, a, a piece of wood. We're just laying it down and they're walking across it, but they have to do the walking. They got to. I mean, it's one of the hardest things too. I mean, I know clinicians when they come to the courses and, you know, and, and if we're going into a little bit of readiness, willingness, whatever we want mm-hmm. to call that, because it's, it, it, it's got such its, its own, you know, entity, um, and I never want people to really, people choose to do things um, and whether they're motivated to do it or ready to do it or whatever they are to do it, it's a choice. And we have to accept that choice. Um, but we also have to be able to play the tough card if they're choosing to not take on things, then we got to choose not to keep bringing them in. We can choose to follow up. In fact, we should choose to follow up because it shows we're intent. And if you do choose to follow up and you remeasure, you may actually see that person's getting better on their own and they should be validated for that improvement because you weren't even involved in it. And that's been my you know, experience with really understanding when is it time to just say, hey, it's time for a break. You're doing great. You've got a tangible handful of tools I think at this moment in time, you just need more time. Hmm. So why don't we do this? Why don't you come back in a month and see where you're at? In the meantime, you got any questions, any concerns, anything. I'm the first to know. Right? Because they need that. Yeah. They, they don't need to be called pre-contemplated. They don't need to be called contemplated. They don't need to be for, thrown into a formal approach of MI, acceptance, commitment therapy. They, you know, even though they're great tangible therapeutic approaches for people who are struggling, sometimes we just got to make the handoff, but commit to the follow-up. Mm-hmm. Because the long-term solutions in the follow-up. That's right. Yeah. I love that. It's yeah, so true. And, and, and it's okay too. It, it breaks practice models, but it's okay. I mean, you can discharge somebody and evaluate again. In fact, your insurance companies probably will more likely pay for that than you trying to reauth or, organ. you know, yeah. Yeah. Just understanding that that's where you are with this person. Um, it's really important uh, because we just we just don't challenge people enough in that area, or we don't accept that this is where there are. Right. Right. And it's both. 
you know, I got to look at my overhead this week and say, yeah, I know I shouldn't bring that guy in, but man, but I need to bring that guy in. You know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that in itself is an ethical dilemma. But as you're building your practice, here's another piece of advice for business owners having my own private practice for so long. I've always managed to make it happen because my follow-up care carries me through. And if you're smart, you're scheduling your follow-up cares during your downtimes. So your volumes remain steady. And whether you're a practice director, whether you're a clinic manager, whether you're your own person, if you're dedicated to the long-term, you're dedicated to following up. That's right. Yeah. And I so agree with that. that follow yeah. up into where your valleys are a little bit, you'll have that steady stream that you'll never have to have that ethical situation. That one doesn't need to be here, Annie, two days a week. In fact, you should probably send them out for two weeks, but ah, I need to make it ends meet. You know, like you won't have to have that because you'll be doing your follow up care so well, you know. Having a practice for 35 years, I mean, I, I got a guy I just saw last week. I've known him for 30 years. He's like, do you remember when you first met me? I said, yeah, I do, actually. And he was just like, I was in therapy all the time. I said, I haven't been to a doctor for my back in over 20 years. Wow. The first 10 years, he's had two surgeries. I mean, and he's like, you know, it's the partnership. It's having to come and account to you, you know, once or twice a year, or I've skipped years, you know, that I'm still managing to keep myself going. And that was like, when he said that to me, I was like, wow, thank you for saying that. I do have 30 years of notes on you. <laughs> and I've been to all of your daughter's weddings and I need, you know, and I know about everybody in your family, but these are great relationships. Yeah. Yeah, so follow-up care practice, work hard in that. Chiropractors really get it. Physical therapists and occupational therapists, we're just, we don't think about our abilities that way. But I know our professional practices are looking more for us to do that. And it, as a collaboration, right, we should be all doing that. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think there's there's a spectrum of I can only really speak to to Kairos that I've either worked with or worked alongside or currently consult with. And I think that the bigger the practice, the more um, you know systems and processes are in place that really nail their follow up system. And the smaller the practice, it's almost like uh, you know I'll, I'll get to it when I get to it on the priority you know the list of priorities for the week, which means it's usually last. And so it it gets done maybe once a month if that, as opposed to possibly, you know, like we probably have about 1500 to 1700 past patients. And we, we do see like some recurring ones, um, like regularly. And one of the things that they say over and over again is like, like you, you never give up on me, you know, yeah. like, and I'm like, no, you're either going to die or you're going to move, you know? And <laughs> exactly. it's like, that's, I say that with all the love in the world, but like, I, I say this on a lot of my marketing pieces on some of my emails that go out. It's like, I, even if you unsubscribe from my email, like I'm still going to text you. I'm still going to yeah. follow up with you. I want to know that because I care about you. And, totally. and there's some, there's some pride in some of the outcomes that we got, you know, two years ago. Um, so I'm not going to give up on you. And so when, when people are getting calls from me or getting a text from me now, most of it's automated, but when people are getting that, those type of correspondence with me, you know, the follow-up system 
is what is going to build our practice in three months from now and six months from now. And so I'm, I'm really encouraged to hear you say, you know, uh, that the follow-up system is solution. Yeah. It's the long-term yeah. solution that yeah. promotes prevention. We have to just be able to go like this. Hmm. Does this person right now need prevention as the intervention? Hmm. Yeah. Where I should be really working the long-term solution more than the short-term because they've been That's just right. repeating short-term, repeating short-term, repeating short-term, and they really all along needed long-term. That yeah. That's really, you know, that clinical decision you make to sometimes have to stop the endless short-term solution care. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. But you're, you're on the right path. I mean, that's, that's no, well, it's, it, it's a path. Um, I'll say it's, it's been a path. Well, I don't know. I mean, yeah. I can only say from experience and running a couple, you know, practices, not yeah. only my own is that is the right answer. You know, um, and having it as a, you know, a vision and a mission and, and an intent like you have, Alex, is is really, really well thought and therefore it will be well sought, you know. Hmm. Well, I, I appreciate that. I'm I'm very humbled and, and very honored to hear you say that. It's been, it's been a journey. It's been something that my wife and I have experienced on in our own, uh, you know, medical experiences. And we kind of, we then do either the exact opposite. Of from what we've been frustrated with inside of the, the medical world, or we experienced something that was like a breath of fresh air where we're like, wow, that was, that was beautiful healthcare put into effect. Like, let's, let's try to replicate that, but in our chiropractic and physical medicine, you know, clinic. So that's, that's why our, our style is, um, I, I don't want to say unique because I think it's actually um, becoming more and more uh, popular amongst, you know, private practices, um, in here in 2022 and definitely into 2023 that this like next wave of chiropractors that are coming out on their own are, uh, are, are going to practice very similarly. So it's not like I'm doing anything new. I'm just kind of like what you said about your book. It's a whole culmination of different thoughts and ideas and, and original work. And then it's put into that. We've done the same just in how we operate our, our clinic. So. Yeah. Um, and the book is a how-to book. That's what it is. Yeah. It's yeah. the how, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, and someone once said that the the why, so like, why is someone hurting? Like the why means nothing without how. So your book is a wonderful resource for yeah. us in, in, in clinical practice. So, well, not everyone needs to know why, but yeah. everyone needs to know how. Love and, it. and that's, yeah. And, you know, so, I mean, like I said, and, and really it, there's so many people that have contributed to it. Like I, it's, I have a thank you slide when we go through in the courses, because I just want people to appreciate how many institutes and people and professionals and who have contributed to the material to even get to where it is today. So, you know, to be the mouthpiece for it is, is really, you know, glory days. Um, and to have lived it and, and therapeutically put it into a product, you know, I mean, it took nine years to write this book. I mean, the publisher was like, you're done you're done. You cannot add anything more into it, you know? And that was, that was a hard thing, you know? Yeah. I bet. You know, but, I um, bet. but yeah, I mean, so 25 years of experience in it, in practice, nine years of writing it, and then seven years of having it available to the public. Um, unfortunately, I just probably just gave everybody a win of how old I am, you know? So those are just, uh, you know, that's, 
but time what else do i got you know i mean unless i'm kind of saying well what's your next role here you know well i think that's a a great place to kind of wrap up here today um thank you so much for coming on um i know you got a lot going on and it means the world not just to me but to the listeners and just the genuine authentic nature that you have and just your desire to contribute to the healthcare professions, not, not Cairo or PT specific, but just trying to raise the level of, of healthcare. Um, and just your, really your, your humility to give credit where credit is due for all the people that contributed to, um, to the book. Um, it's impacting practices, not just ours, but a lot of the people that listen to our show, they've read your book or at least, you know, bits and pieces of your book and they're putting it into practice. So, um, a massive thank you uh, and and congratulations on just, I don't know, just all of the things that you're currently doing. You're doing it with the the, the, the best of intentions and you're, you're impacting a lot of clinicians who are then going on and impacting a lot of lives. So just a massive congratulations to you on all that you've accomplished and are still accomplishing today. Alex, thank you. I, I'm going to receive that. You're welcome. Um, it's been just a pleasure to spend this time with you and and see you actually too, just so, uh, thank you. You guys, you're, you're doing great work, so don't quit on it. You know? Well, that, that's very kind of you to say, I, and we won't, we'll keep going. We'll keep plugging yeah, along. This I, is the I, wave of the future yeah. for education right now. It, yeah. It's shifting from in-person courses to virtual, to podcasts and, and rightly so it should. I mean, you know, we don't need to be so um, academic about what we're doing. I mean, I'll end with this because I know all of the clinicians out there, I want you to applaud yourself when you're sitting at your next continuing ed course or conference or whatever. Because I always say this to the people that are out there in the audience. I'm like, look, if this is what's happening to you today, where you go like this, well, I knew that. Yeah, I knew that I'm doing that. I knew that I'm doing that you've reached what Greg has, uh, you're there. <laughs> you're there. You can, there's not much you can seek more. Right. Okay. So if that's happening to you over and over again, do yourself a favor. It's not about seeking. It's about doing, ask yourself if you're doing that. Don't ask yourself, ask yourself if you know it, because you do know it. Right. And that's what you've talked about, that cumulation of that. And it can happen anywhere in anybody's practice. It doesn't doesn't necessarily mean the more you've been practicing, the more likely that's happening. But if right. it's happening to you, you've achieved that. Okay. And for you to give any further is to either document it, it needs to be put in a book, or for you to really grow in the doing more than the knowing. Um, and that's purely wisdom. And that's a switch in the whole intellectual curves of life. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So you're doing the work and that's good. But let's end on if that's happening to you, hear the bigger message. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. So where can people learn more about you? Re- get World in contact with two. you? Perfect. World of Hurt 2. 2. The number two, because it's about me and you, right? A partnership to make this right. At gmail.com is my email. If you've got, hey, you want to talk about people and, you know, I hate to say cases, but that's the word everyone kind of knows. But I'm all in on that. I love sharpening through email myself as well as the person who's emailing. So, or you got, you know, desires to 
host a course or anything like that or want material or any way we can help you. World of Hurt 2 at gmail.com and worldofhurt2.com is the website. Uh, so that's where you can contact me if necessary. <laughs> awesome. We'll make sure we include that in the show notes and we'll go ahead and yeah, and let what, me uh, the, send you the traffic light guide and stuff like that. And yeah, maybe yeah. throw out some of the, you know, I'd love to, I don't know if you, the yellow flag risk form, I really love that to to get out there more and just a short little guide on how to use it um, because it's just such a clinical gem. Um, awesome. So, whatever, whatever you want to send our way, we'll make sure we include yeah. in the uh, kind of the email broadcast that'll go out when this goes live. So Annie, again, thank you so much for coming on. So grateful for you. And uh, we look forward to having you on again, maybe at a later date for round two, where we might take a deeper dive into some of those subgrouping um, co- you know, categories of persistent pain. That would be, that. I'm just setting the set, planting a seed here for maybe round two at a later date. Okay. I love it. Let's subgroup chronic pain. It's my favorite topic. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. Uh, right. Thanks again, Annie, for coming on. Bye-bye.